Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. And for the rest of you, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have finally wrapped up chapters 8, 9, and 10, which were all about the believer's freedom and liberty. And now we're entering a new section of this letter in which Paul is addressing a whole host of issues related to the disorder in their corporate worship gathering as the church. You remember 1 Corinthians, the letter is Paul's response. It is his letter back to this church uh, in, in response to the questions, <clears throat> excuse me, that they had written to him, that he had received a letter most likely through the messengers that he references in chapter uh, 16 there at the end, and uh, they had asked him a number of questions. And, uh, and so Paul writes back with his apostolic answers, and he also gives them free of charge some additional correction and counsel as he goes through this letter on matters that have come to his attention, whether that's indirectly through the content of the letters, the way that they've said things and what they've said to him, as well as directly through the messengers who brought him these, this letter and also many updates about life and ministry in this beloved church. He loved this church. He'd ministered there for quite some time. <clears throat> in the book of Acts, we see that recorded for us. And, uh, and so he's writing back to them. And beginning in chapter 11, verse 2, and continuing all the way through chapter 14, Paul is, is giving his authoritative counsel and correction on the debate and dysfunction that had taken root in their corporate worship as a church. There was debate and dysfunction around the God-given roles of men and women, and that's what we're going to see in the text that's before us this morning. There was debate and dysfunction around the Lord's table, and that we will pick up next Sunday in verses 17 to 34. And then in an extended section in chapters 12, 13, and 14, he addresses the debate and the dysfunction that was surrounding their understanding and use of spiritual giftedness, how they were thinking about all of that. So the specifics of who and told Paul what aren't really that clear from the text, and nor does it really matter that much. But what we do know is that Paul's instruction back to this church um, is exactly what they and we need to know about maintaining decency and order in all that we do in our corporate worship. <clears throat> if it can happen to them, if they can make the mistakes that they made on these issues in their church, then, then there's absolutely nothing that precludes us from making those same errors or making those same mistakes. And so we need this just as much as they do. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I just want to read the text. We'll read down through verse 16, and, uh, and then we will unpack it this morning. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. 
Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also a man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has his long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now, the issue that is front and center in the beginning of chapter 11 is the, dis- the debate and the dysfunction around God-given roles for men and women. And the passage we're looking at this morning, we have to acknowledge, is one of the more difficult passages that we'll deal with in this letter and really in the New Testament. Because, and I think it's difficult, not just because uh, I'm worried that you're not familiar with it, and it's not difficult necessarily because I'm worried that you're not even in agreement with most of what Paul's going to say here. It is difficult because the exhortations and the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives in these verses, it swims upstream from the culture that we live in. And um, not only does Paul instruction, not only does it swim against the tide of the culture we live in, but there are a slew of interpretive issues throughout this that require careful consideration for us as we understand and apply this text rightly. So this section that we're looking at this morning, I confess to you, is a challenging passage. We are not, uh, but that challenge doesn't scare us off. It doesn't cause us to throw up our hands in defeat. Instead, it prompts us to dig in, and it, charges, it challenges us to dig down and unearth God's wisdom so as to receive a blessing. So that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. Paul understands, and that's what his point is in this text, that men and women have been created by God's design to fulfill unique and specific roles, uh, unique and complementary roles, and in which men are called to lead protect, primarily lead, protect, and provide, and women are called primarily to follow, affirm, and nurture. But as we understand as a result of sin, God's design has been distorted. It has been altered. In many cases, it's, in our culture, it's been obliterated as men and women, either out of ignorance or out of rebellion. It's not really not always, um, it's not always ignorance. Sometimes it's just direct rebellion. They attack the scriptures and they throw off the different responsibilities that they have been given before God. You don't have to look around a lot today. You don't have to look around too far to find glaring examples in our culture and in the world where we live that people are doing everything possible to kind of spit the bit, if you will, and to, uh, when it comes to this unique and complementary roles of men and women. In fact, today, the debate isn't really even about the roles that men and women should play in any given context or in the culture at large. Today, the debate has become and is degenerated to the point that the culture is questioning the definition of gender itself and whether that's a part of a person's essential nature or as the culture is like, likes to say, is just a culturally defined social construct that is able to be distorted at any given time to fit the wildest imaginations of a, the sinful heart. This is not a new debate. This is a debate that happened in the first century. It's still a debate that's happening now. And the reality is that in our culture, this debate has been ongoing for decades. We've seen this 
Those of you who have been around a lot longer than I have understand that it began with the um, feminist movement in the United States in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it has jumped to a whole jumped to a whole nother level in the stratosphere in the 2000s with the homosexual agenda that has taken off. And now, in the last 10 years, the debate has been uh, fueled by this explosion of transgender ideology and the mainstreaming, if you will, of the reprobate mind that we see Paul talking about in Romans chapter one. All of it, all of it, is an assault on God's word. And it is an attack on the wisdom of God and the goodness of God. And that has real consequences. I think we need to acknowledge that. We, we have to acknowledge that, that when we throw off the word of God and his wisdom and his truth, that has consequences. It has consequences for individuals, and it has consequences for the culture as a whole. Um, the United States has, t- has taken sin's brokenness and weaponized it to perpetuate the decay and the dysfunction that we're seeing around us all the time. So many people have been told and sold, really, a lie about the corruption of their own hearts, their brokenness, and their pain. And now, very few realize what normal even looks like. I think that's kind of where we're at. And by normal, I mean simply God's natural design for human well-being, like a two-parent home with a father and a mother or um, the valuing and protecting of human life, or children and teenagers who aren't glued to a screen every waking moment, or uh, men acting like men, women acting like women, like just the normal things uh, of human flourishing, those things are foreign to our culture. And sin's brokenness, when it's called virtue, and virtue is condemned as sinful brokenness, what you end up with is this downward spiral of division and dysfunction that multiplies guilt, it multiplies pain and hopelessness, it does that exponentially across society. And when guilt and pain and hopelessness are on uh, exponential increase, it requires then ever more purposeful and costly interventions on a societal level to keep the whole ship from capsizing. And that is where we are at as a country right now. Thankfully, though, the Word of God shows us what normal looks like. The Word of God shows us and defines for us what is virtue and what is righteous and what is wicked. And perhaps most important of all, God's Word through the gospel shows the world how sin's guilt and its shame can be forgiven and ensuring that that guilt and shame can no longer be exploited and manipulated by bad actors for their own selfish purposes. So understanding and embracing our God-given roles as men and women leads us down a path of joy. Understanding and embracing our God-given roles preserves peace, and understanding and embracing our God-given roles fosters fruitfulness and blessing. And that is why Paul writes what he writes in this section. Verses 2 to 16 were written to remind the church, both the men and the women in Christ's church, to fulfill their divine roles as men and women to ensure that all is done decently and in order, which is really how he ends chapter 14. And he does that in the text this morning by employing two lines of argument. 
Two arguments, if you will. So that's kind of our outline. The first point is way longer than the second point, so don't, don't um, get nervous. <laughs> the first argument is in verses 2 through verse 12, and that is an argument from divine calling. He's going to argue for the roles of men and women by, by divine calling. And then lastly, he's going to make a, a short but a common a, a, a second argument by uh, appealing to the divinely given common sense in verses 13 to 16. So that's, that's kind of what we break it down. So there's an argument from divine calling, 2 to 12, and an argument from divine common sense, divinely gifted common sense in verses 13 to 16. But we begin this morning in verse, verses uh, 2 to 12, and Paul is making essentially an argument from divine calling. He begins in verse 2 by praising them for holding fast to the body of truth that both he and the other apostles had delivered to them. He says, I, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, as we get into chapters 11, 12, and 13, you're going to say, well, gee, it doesn't seem like they've exactly embraced everything that Paul has taught him, taught them, that uh, there might be some, a few things that they need to hold on to a little bit more firmly. But the point of verse 2 is that it is to encourage them, and it serves as a way to cushion what is going to follow in the, in the verses that come. Because what lies ahead is going to point to a number of issues that they need to uh, embrace and put into practice more faithfully. So I guess the takeaway from verse 2 is kind of an introduction is to put it simply for us is we all have room to grow spiritually. And secondly, there's an important place in the life of the church for the commonly held teachings handed down to us from those who've gone before us. Uh, there's an appeal, just as there was in our scripture reading this morning, uh, Paul appeals to the traditions of the apostles handed down to them. We, as a church, often, not, I don't mean we specifically as a local church, but just in general, churches tend to put way too much weight on what is new and what is novel. And we need to be careful with that. Newer is truer is kind of the banner that we fly, or what's recent is most decent kind of a thing. And that that is dangerous. That novelty, when it, especially at this stage of uh, church history, novelty is a, is a huge, huge um, red flag. But for God's people in his church, there is a substantial, especially now, there's a substantial deposit of truth, faithfully summarized, tried and tested, passed down to us by those who have gone before us. And we should be very, very slow to depart from those old paths. Uh, and I would say that that is a good reminder from verse 2. But all that is just kind of an introduction to what the principle that he gives us in verse 3. Having given them this word of encouragement to kind of cushion what is to come, he lays down this principle that governs the rest of this section. And the principle is this. We have a divine calling as either a man or a woman, whatever God's created you to be, that uniquely governs how we are to conduct ourselves in relationship to one another. Say that again. We each have a divine calling as either a man or a woman that uniquely governs how we are to conduct ourselves and relate to one another. Verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, as you look at that, uh, we obviously understand he's using this term 
head here in a metaphorical sense. It's not literal. And there's been some confusion through church history, some disagreement as to what this term means. Some have argued that its primary meaning is the idea of source. When it says that man is the he- Christ is the head of every man, it's saying man derives his being, his source, from Christ, and the woman derives her being from man, and the son derives his being from the father. Now, um, you could make that argument. There are places where the term is used that way, but it's really not the most common or frequent way that it's used, and it also opens up a whole host of other issues. For example, in what way does a woman derive her being from man differently than man derives his being from God? I mean, like, every man derives their being from God. Paul even says that later on in verse 12, all things originate from God. So that's kind of a non-statement to say that. And so if we understand it as source, I think that um, that creates some uh, confusion there, not to mention it's really not used that way throughout the New Testament. The more compelling argument, and this is how I would argue we should understand it, and it doesn't necessarily you know, toss out the idea of source, but it, it definitely uh, whittles it down a little bit. The more compelling argument is that he uses this term head in verse 3, refer to the idea of authority. So Christ is the authority over every man, man is the authority over the woman, and God is the Father, God the Father is the authority over Christ. This authority then is the most frequently used uh, uh, term, uh, translation for this term, head, and it is understood this way in uh, other parts of the New Testament. It's, it would have been understood this way and translated this way in the Greek Old Testament version that Paul would have been familiar with. And I think what is most compelling is this is how Paul uses the term in other portions of his writings in, in Ephesians chapter 1, as well as Ephesians chapter 5 on this very issue of the roles of husbands and wives. He is very clear that he's referring to it using the term of authority. Um, so I think that's the best way for us to interpret that. Now, some translations think Paul is talking about husbands and wives here, which I guess in theory he could be. I think the ESV picks it up later on and says husbands and wives. But I don't think there's anything in the grammar or the context that hints that he's just talking to married people. This isn't, and it really wouldn't, it's not like unmarried people get a pass on all this. So I think the best way to understand it is this is addressing men and women in general. He's speaking to the whole church, which would have included married and unmarried, widows and widowers, and people who were divorced and so forth. We know that from chapter 7, that all those different groups of people were present. He specifically says every man, every woman, several times throughout. I think he's alerting us to the fact that he's speaking about men in general, not just husbands, because you can translate it that way, or women in general, not just wives, those who are married. But, uh, so we understand that there's a, there's, a, there's a relationship between the man and the woman, and, that, uh, and then he also ends it in, in verse 3, he says, and God is the head of Christ. Now, what are we supposed to make of that statement? Uh, what, do we, what do we do with that? And why is it placed here at the end? You know, it seems like it should be at the beginning, if we're kind of building a hierarchy. Um, and is Paul saying then that God the Son is, is lesser than God the Father? Is, is that what he's implying when he says that? In saying that Christ is obedient to the Father under authority, and some is that some kind of acknowledgement that the Son is lower on the, the I don't know, 
the totem pole than, than the Father, uh, or God the Holy Spirit for that matter. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. In fact, I think this is a masterful statement in terms of what it means and where he puts it at the end. When Paul says that God the Father is the head or the authority of Christ, he's not saying that Christ is other than God, that he's not God or some other substance, nor is he saying that Christ is inferior. Rather, he is pointing out that who Jesus is as the Son, eternally proceeding from the Father, who he is defines and directs what he does outside of himself. So being sent as he is You know, in John, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Being sent, uh, hearing and doing all that the Father wills, as he says in John chapter 5. Being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Paul writes in Philippians 2. All of it is an extension of who he is as the son, the eternal son. It is his unique part to play in the unfolding of, of the triune God's undivided plan of salvation. Put simply, who Jesus is governs how he conducts himself in working out God's divine purposes for salvation. Christ is no less God than the Father is God. Christ is no less God than the Holy Spirit is God. He is, he's already made that plain. As John 10 verse 30 says, Jesus declares to the people, I and the Father are one. We are of the same essence. John 17, verse 5, Jesus says that he shares in the Father's infinite glory and has from from the beginning of time. In Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus sits on his Father's throne, right? You don't do that unless you are God. Yet, because of who he is as the Son, eternally receiving life and love from the Father in the Holy Spirit, his proper, his specific mode of acting as Christ in time and space is one in which he receives his actions from the Father. And so Paul can say, as he does here at the end of verse 3, God is the head of Christ. He is laying out this principle, this divine principle, that whether you're a man or a woman, You and I have a divine calling that uniquely governs how we conduct ourselves in relationship to the opposite sex. God's calling placed on your life as a man, if you're a man, uniquely governs how you conduct yourself as a man in relationship to other women. We are called as men primarily to lead, to protect, and to provide, both in our homes and in the church. God's called, uh, calling placed on your life, if you're a woman, uniquely governs how you conduct yourself as a woman in relationship to other men, fo- primarily following, affirming, and nurturing. His point is we all have a divine calling and a role to play, whether we are men or women, and those distinct roles are just that. They are distinct. They are in no way implying inferiority to those who are under authority. I think that's why Paul places it at the end rather than the beginning of verse 3. That is his point. He wants to teach them that the authority that a man has over the woman does not suggest inferiority of women nor the superiority of men. Even though God is the head over Christ, he is not essentially greater than Christ, and we understand that. 
nor is Christ inferior to the Father. If the Son, his point is, if the Son can operate as one under authority to his Father and not be diminished and not be denigrated and not be disparaged, then his point is, you women can also operate as those under authority to godly leadership without diminishing, denigrating, or disparaging yourself or any other woman. That's his point. Verse 3 teaches that while that we all have a divine role to play that flows out from who we are, who God has created us to be as men and women. And that, Paul says, ought to be reflected in how we conduct ourselves in the corporate worship context. And that's how he applies the text then in verses 4 to 12. You look at verse 4, he says, now, this is the outflow. He states the principle in verse 3. The application is in the following verses. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. What is he talking about here? Paul objects to men in that context, wearing a head covering in the worship service because dressing yourself in that way would be disgraceful. Why? Because that's how a woman in that culture would dress. Likewise, he objects to women who don't wear a head covering in the worship service because dressing themselves in that way would be disgraceful. Why? Because that's how a man would dress in that culture. So he goes on then to add that for a woman to engage in corporate worship in that day with her head uncovered would be as shameful as walking around with her head shaved. And that's why he says what he says. For she is one and the same, this woman with no covering on her head, as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So every woman in the first century culture would have been utterly humiliated to appear in public with her head shaved or cut extremely short because that would make her look like a man. That's his point. Apparently, there were women in this church, and perhaps men as well, who were saying, you know what, we're all in Christ. Um, We're all citizens of heaven. We are all children of the king, so all these earthly distinctions, right? We know, we know that Jesus said in heaven they're not given or give, married or given in marriage. Uh, you know, we're, we're like the angels. So, so we're all earthly distinctions have kind of uh, will one day, those things will be kind of in the background, male and female, all that's insignificant. And, and if it's insignificant, then why do we even need to bother, um, you know, conforming our outward appearance and behavior to to fit these these patterns that we've known all our lives. And Paul's response in this section is to point out to them that they're not insignificant. They are meaningful. And they are divinely ordained in the distinctions that that he gives between men and women. He says those distinctions bring glory to the respective authority that's over them. And that's what you see him explaining in verses 7 through 10. He says, for a man ought not to have his head covered, like a woman would, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. 
He says, so when a man acts like a woman, he disgraces his head. And he could be talking about himself. He disgraces himself. But more likely, he's talking about how he disgraces the one who's over him, Christ. Um, and when a woman acts like a man, she disgraces her head. Now, she could be, again, talking about herself. It's, it's, in a sense, it is disgraceful to herself. But he says she disgraces her head, which is the man. And then he repeals back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 to make his argument. And in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 18, we see what he is describing. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. Adam is just by himself with all the animals, like Dr. Doodaloo. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and the sky and brought them to this man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found his helper suitable for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to him. She was taken out of man, verse 23 says. And so we see this, um, God's design. He's pointing out that from the beginning, God created man first, and then from man created the woman, his unique and fitting helpmate. So God's design for men and women and the inherent distinctiveness between them is not grounded in the culture. It is not a cultural thing. It is grounded in creation and the created order. And when either a Christian man or woman comes into the worship service, acting and dressing like the opposite sex, they communicate their rebellion to God's divine calling on their life as a man or as a woman. It broadcasts, if you will, a spirit of rebellion and independence to everyone present in the worship service. And so Paul instructs these women in Corinth that when they come to the worship service, they should do so in culturally appropriate dress, which in that day meant wearing some kind of a covering, a shawl of some kind over one's head. So that's the question that this text asks is, does that mean that we should be doing that today? Does this apply to women today? Is this a practice for the church in all times and all places, this covering of the head? And I would answer, no, it is not for all places in all times. We have to distinguish between the fundamental principle that underlies the text and the application of the principle for our present culture. So in the first century, particularly in Corinth, a woman's failure to wear a head covering in a public assembly like a church service, that sent a very clear signal that they were rejecting the authority of male headship, that they were throwing off the God's divine design for men and women. Paul's concern with the head coverings themselves is really a concern about the message that those things communicate to other Christians and to the culture as a whole. So, if a woman fails to wear a head covering today in our culture, if they do that, that doesn't communicate anything. 
doesn't communicate anything, in Amer- at least in America, in our culture. No one thinks that a woman is defying the distinctiveness of God's uh, you know, design for men and women. No one picks up on that if you're not wearing a head covering as a woman in our culture. They're not rebelling against the patriarchy. Okay? That's, not what he, that's not the case. But that doesn't mean, then, that the text doesn't have application for us today. The principle remains. The principle remains, and that is when a woman enters the corporate worship gathering or any other context for that matter, she should conduct herself in a manner that makes it clear that she is affirming, supporting, and following male leadership. Likewise, men should come to the corporate worship gathering understanding that they have a divine calling to lead and protect and take initiative and not sit around like bumps on a log while all the women in the church pick up their slack. So he says you need to act like men and men need to act like uh, women need to act like women and men need to act like men. And then he throws in this little thing at the end because of the angels. You say what does that mean? And I tell you I have no idea. <laughs> no, I really don't. There's 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 literally a, there's like a dozen different things and I can't cuz here's the thing. Paul writes to them, there are, suff- there, there are things that are understood between them that are not communicated in the text. And so it's just not clear to us. But here's, what, here's I'm going to take a stab at what I think he's getting at. It's hard to be dogmatic, and I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic, but I think what he's alluding to, well, I think he's definitely he's talking about holy angels, not talking about demons. He's alluding to holy angels who the scripture teaches us are ministering spirits to the saints. That is their primary job and responsibility. So he could be alluding to the fact that when, because the, 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 these angels, these ministering spirits are in us, in and around and with us, even as we worship as the church, he says they, could, they uh, long to see the creation order maintained. And First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 12 speaks about how the angels kind of are looking in and in kind of wonder at all that God's people are doing. And, uh, and, and Peter says in chapter 1, verse 12, um, speaking of the prophets of old, they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. And then he said, things into which angels long to look. So I think you could make a case there as well as... Um, um, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 21, it talks about how the angels are, and he charges you in the presence of God and the holy angels. So there's a, there's a sense in which angels are present with us. We can't see them. We can't touch them. We can't feel them. But they are here. They minister to us. And I think they are um, servants of God. The other issue that, you know, angels are what? Those, there are those under command. They are those who follow authority. Christ, the, the holy angels, are under God's command, and they do so um, as servants, as spirit, with that attitude. And so I think that could also be in play as well. That's what he's alluding to. But he just doesn't give us the full picture, and so, and so we just have to kind of take it with, and understand it the best we can. But the point is that there is a way for a man to act. There's a way for a woman to conduct themselves in the worship service. All that said, though, all that said, the line of argumentation from verses 7 through 10, that is liable to misunderstanding, that is liable to abuse. 
It is liable to abuse with, with, if you have immature and godless men reading those verses. They, they think and behave as though women are inferior to men. They might turn around and, and start to think that they're inferior to men in terms of their value, their worth, and their capabilities of hum, as human beings, which would be completely to misunderstand what Paul's saying. And so in order to correct their wrong understanding, he says what he says in verses 11 and 12. And uh, just as he, he kind of gives that, cat, that qualification, just as he did at the end of verse 3, so that God's people can understand that though man is the head of the woman, that does not mean that you can or should or have any right to denigrate, disparage, or look down upon women as inferior or subservient to men. Notice what he says in verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. These verses are an important qualification to Paul's argument. He's saying women and men operate in interdependence of one in in interdependence of one another in the Lord. All right? Yes, the first man Adam was the source of the force of the first woman, but all men since Adam have come into the world through whom? Women. <laughs> right? You were born of a woman. And just as a man is born of a woman, so woman needs man to bring forth offspring, whether they be male or female. And so he's saying there is this mutuality, this interdependence within that male-female distinction in that relationship that just cannot be ignored. Neither men nor women can boast over the other because without the other one, without one, the other wouldn't exist. <laughs> That's his point. He does the same thing in Romans. You notice in Romans chapter 11, when Paul is talking to the Jews and Gentiles and he's seeing, well, God's plan of salvation right now, it, it finds its, its, uh, its heart in, the, in and among the Gentiles. Does that mean the Gentiles can boast over the Jews? And he says, he says, no, 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 no. If some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive as Gentiles were grafted in among them and became partakers with them, of that rich root, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Just because uh, you're, you're kind of on top of things right now does not mean that you can boast over, over the Jews. He says, remember, he says, that it is not you who support the root, but the root, root supports you. This is the same argument, and this is what he's saying here as well. He says, men, don't, get a, don't, don't start thinking that you're superior to women. Don't act like women are somehow subservient to men. They both need one another. They are both equal in value and capabilities and grace before God. They are fellow heirs of the grace of life, as Paul says in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we need to treat them as such, so don't get uh, don't get turned upside down. There is this mutuality. And besides that, he says, all things originate from God. Everyone, whether you're a man or a woman, only exists by the grace of God. So verses 11 to 12 make it clear that the distinctions between men and women are divi divinely ordained. And at the same time, there is a fundamental equality between men and women before God. Both are created in the image of God with the same value, the same dignity, the same capabilities, and yet each possess a fundamental distinction that cannot be ignored. 
That's his point. Those two realities are not competing against one another. They are not contradictory. So that is his argument from divine calling. He ends in verses 13 to 16 with an argument from divinely given common sense. An argument from divinely given common sense. If you look at verse 13, he says, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Here Paul appeals to our own judgment about reality, as it, as it were, as kind of a second witness. It's a second witness to the fundamental distinctions that are obvious between men and women. The function of these verses is simply to show that the wearing of a head covering by a woman accords perfectly with the God-given sense that women and men are different. They're different. And uh, he says, nature teaches that natural instinct, that natural perception that we all have teaches us that masculinity and femininity will manifest themselves distinctly in any culture. Men and it appeals to just common sense. Men instinctively, naturally shrink away from acting or dressing or participating in activities that their culture labels as feminine. At least they used to. Women instinctively and naturally are uneasy with acting, dressing, and participating in activities that their culture labels as masculine. Again, it's not looking exactly the same in every culture and every time, but there's always been a distinction between the way men conduct themselves in any given culture and the way women conduct themselves in any given culture. And Paul's saying you need to respect that. You need to respect that. It may look different in different times and different places, but there is a distinction. And it's obvious. It's obvious. He says, and then he appeals to just the reality of how a woman wears her hair. It is often an indicator of whether they rejected or accepted that created order. Even just uh, physiologically, men, most of us are going to lose our hair, right? Mine's starting to, my hairline's gone way back and it's thinning out. And by and large, most of us men will be bald by the time we get to be, uh, you know, in our upper years. That's not necessarily the case for most women. And Paul's just kind of pointing out that there's a real difference physiologically and practically when it comes to men and women. Consequently, it's no surprise then that what we see now in our culture is an increasing hostility uh, to biblical truth and natural reason. And as a consequence, what do you see? They are blurring those lines between men and women, between male and female. Men dressing like women, women dressing like men. But there is a limit. There's a limit to what the conscience will bear. And Paul's appealing to that reality in these verses. And you're already seeing that in our culture, in the collective unease surrounding, for example, transgender athletes competing in collegiate sports or high school sports. We understand instinctively, the culture understands that there's an obvious physiological difference between men and women that creates an unfair competitive advantage for a biological male to compete as a woman with other actual women. For example, in, a, in a swimming or, 
or um, any other sport for that matter. And we understand instinctively there's an unfair competitive disadvantage for the biological female who competes as a man against actual women. Right? We, uh, it's just it's obvious. And what you're seeing now is that people are starting to say, well, wait a second. Wait, wait a second. How far are we going to push this? And that, is the, that instinct is what Paul is appealing to in these verses. He says, judge for yourselves. You're reasonable people. Think about it. Common sense, he says, like a teacher, instructs us that you cannot flip, you cannot blur, you cannot obliterate these distinctions between men and women and ignore what is right in front of you. And so this, again, is his appeal to the divinely given common sense. Common sense. There once was a farmer who grew tired of watching over his farm. And he looked out into the world of academics, and, uh, and he longed to be a scholar, teaching in the prestigious universities, published in the scholarly journals, revered by students. And so he left his farm, enrolled in the university, took classes, but quickly found himself in and over his head, the papers, the reading, the exams, it was all tedious and time-consuming. After a season, he grew restless and looked out at the military, and he longed to be a soldier, traveling the world, fighting for freedom, leading his men into battle. So he left the university and enlisted in the army, went off to basic training, quickly found himself bogged down in drudgery, the PT, the drills, the monotony, all of it seemed so meaningless and confining. And after a season, he grew restless yet again and looked out to the world of commerce and longed to be a salesman. He longed to close deals and schmooze with the rich and powerful and earn lots of money. So he left the military and took a job in the corporate world, making cold calls, but realized there was little more than dead ends and mindless scripts and the logging of his calls and endless follow-ups. It was all fruitless and dull. And finally, the farmer, in a moment of clarity, longed to be back on his farm, waking up early, studying the weather, prepping the ground. So he left the city, went back to his farm, jumped on his tractor, and got to work. He sowed the seed, watered and fed the crops, and at the end of the season brought in a full harvest. And it was satisfying and fruitful. It's a parable. It's meant to illustrate a simple principle when you try to be something that you're not, by God's design intended to be, it leads to futility, frustration, and fruitlessness. The farmer, he wanted to be a scholar, wanted to be a soldier, wanted to be a salesman. And when he tried to be all those things in practice, what he wasn't in person, he was a farmer through and through. All he experienced was frustration and disappointment. But when he turned back to his farm, when he did what God created him to do, sowing a seed, tending his crops, bringing in the harvest, then he was satisfied and productive. And the same is true for each one of us. When we fulfill our divine roles as men and women, the way God's created us to be, that is the place where we find greatest joy and satisfaction. That is the place where God receives the greatest glory. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, you say, well, I think you're wrong. <laughs> and to that, Paul would say, verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Paul says, if you want to debate with me on this topic, 
realize that you will not find a sympathetic ear with me or any of the other churches of God, because this is what we do. (laughs) So God's word on the topic, as always, is the last word, and quite frankly, the best word. When men and women do not complement one another according to Scripture's design, neither thrives and neither is fruitful. And when, when men and women kick against the goads of God's word, they forfeit a blessing, both spiritually and physically, that God intends for them, and neither is fruitful. But it doesn't have to be that way. And the culture may look at that, and even our, 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 inst- our collective instinct might bristle at that kind of discussion, but it's God's word, and God created us. This is not a, res- you know, the, 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 this distinction between men and women, and that's not a result of the fall, as some have argued. It's, it's grounded in creation. It's before the fall, Genesis 2. And as we understand those things and embrace them, and as we walk in them, um, we have a great responsibility. And it's interesting, Paul, later on, you know, this isn't just a word for women, this is a word for men as well, to, to fulfill our roles and responsibilities. If men, as he says later on in chapter 16, um, I think it's at the, yeah, at the end here, he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. He says to the men, act like men, <laughs> be strong. And I think if we as men are the godly men that God calls us to be, as he says in verse 14 afterwards, let all that you do be done in love, it makes it a lot easier for the women around us, whether they be our wives, other ladies in the church, whatever, to follow because we're setting a godly example and we're loving them the way Christ loves us. And so... Um, so I'm sure you have questions. I'm sure there are thoughts in your mind to say, what about this and what about that? And what's the deal with the angels? I'm not going to give you an answer on the angel question. I'm not going to pigeonhole myself on that one. But I think, and I praise God, that there are within our church uh, so many women who love what God has taught us in his word about this issue. And we've taught on this before in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, it'll come up again in other contexts, 1 Peter 3 and other places. So many of our women love and embrace their role and responsibility, and that makes, uh, that makes for peaceful homes. It makes for a joyful ministry. It makes for a thriving church, and we're thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you would uh, confront our natural inclination, which is not godly, and instruct us with the truth. I pray that our hearts would be um, convicted where they need to be convicted, encouraged where we need to be encouraged, or it help us to not uh, bend underneath the pressure of, of a culture that hates your word and hates your truth and would seek to tear down that which you have established as for our well-being and your glory. We pray that we would um, not be embarrassed by these things, Lord, but proclaim them openly, live before a watching world. As Paul says, uh, as, we, as we come together each Lord's Day, may... Um, that uh, godly femininity that the scripture calls us to be evident in our ladies and a godly masculinity uh, also be manifest in our men. All for your name's sake, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.